Welcome to The Bounce. I am Bob Lapine. For those of you who are new to this podcast, I'm the lead pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I also serve on the board of directors with the Great Commission Collective, and GCC is responsible for this podcast. Our goal is to help strengthen pastors and plant churches. And we're equally committed to those. And this podcast is designed to help planters and pastors know how to navigate the issues that we're facing in our culture and as we plant and grow local churches. So we're glad you're with us today. And I'm excited about the conversation you're going to get a chance to listen to. Let me set this up for you. I think many of you know the name Rosaria Butterfield, but back In the late 90s, Rosaria was a professor at Syracuse University. She was the head of the Queer Studies program. She was living as a lesbian, and she wrote an op-ed piece for her local newspaper that, as she tells the story, uh, got her a lot of mail. She said, I could put it in two stacks. There was a stack of fan mail and a stack of hate mail. But she said, there was one letter that I didn't know where to put it. It was from a local pastor who said, I was very intrigued by your column, didn't agree with some of the things. We'd like to have you over for dinner. And Rosaria said, I'm up for that challenge. She said, I got my best butch haircut and got a bottle of wine to see if I would offend this pastor and went to dinner at his house. And over the next couple of years, Ken and Dee Smith were winsome In their love and their care for Rosaria, eventually God worked in her heart and she came to faith. She renounced her lesbian lifestyle and years after that wound up marrying her pastor husband, Kent, and has been living as a homeschooling pastor's wife now for a couple of decades. She has written on this subject and has spoken on this subject and has a new book that is going to be the topic of our conversation today. It's called Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. I, I was thinking today, it, it's been a decade since we first met when your first book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, was released, and you came and we interviewed you on that book. And I appreciated then and have always appreciated a a firm commitment to truth and yet the gracious expression of that truth in how you speak and in your life. When when the book, uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, came out, again, we had a chance to talk about that and appreciated that. This book that you've just released is different than the other two. The other two were part memoir and were, were um, I, I was going to say warm and engaging. They were, and I don't want to imply that this one isn't, but this is a polemic. And I, I got this and said, Rosaria has decided it is time to go to war. Yeah. Rosaria is also 61 years old and she's a cranky Italian grandma. And, um, and I don't know, Bob, somebody needs to be a grown-up in this conversation. Um, so I, I will say, and I'm, I'm sort of sorry that you took it as a polemic, because I, I didn't intend it as that. Um, this, my audience for this book is Christian women who know the Bible, they know what it teaches, they thought that they were teaching their children, and they were, uh, you know, orthodox biblical truth. And something now has happened. And 
Um, and what has what has been the result of that is that their families are divided on um, but but everybody still says they're Christian. So it's one thing to have your family mm-hmm. divided. Your kids say, look, I'm leaving the faith. I don't believe it. I have these issues with the Bible. I have these issues with the church. I'm leaving. That's not the people who are writing to me. These were moms and grandmas saying, my children tell me that I'm not a Christian because I don't support transgenderism as normal, homosexuality as normal. Um, If Christ is not divided, why are we? Uh, I keep hearing from major parachurch institutions that I used to trust and I don't anymore that we just need to major on the majors, but I'm not so old and addled that I can't figure out that you can't major on something that you can't agree on. And so their question was a very simple, it's almost a Titus two question, you know, before you get to the Titus two part, um, if Christ is not divided, why are Christians? And what I did was I simply sat down and I came up with three reasons that have produced five lies um, and those five lies are lies I, I certainly believed as a gay rights activist, but many of those lies I believed well into my Christian life. And so the book begins with my repentance to all of you that I also was a believer and a promoter of lies. And um, the problem is that I would say this, the, the, the church can't help these women until it figures out how to train people to be Christians in a hostile world without becoming hostile ourselves. And so what I'm hoping this book will do is equip moms and grandmas, and if the rest of y'all want to listen in, it's that's up to you, um, to really just know that they're not crazy and to understand what's been happening socially and um, in terms of critical theory and other kinds of issues in the last 20 years that has created such an open window for Satan to commandeer our parachurch ministries. Uh, I, there's not really one I can, I'm, I'm standing behind right now, Bob, sorry to report. Yeah. Um, and most of our, you know, big kind of seeker friendly um, evangelical churches um, I, I just don't think the church, you know, I, I just think we need to know what time it is. And so this is just a book that says, here, mom, here, grandma, here's what time it is. You're not crazy. And and Christian colleges and universities, we need to add those in because many of them. Yeah, yeah that's right. Let, let me just recap the lies. You deal with the lie that homosexuality is normal, that being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian that feminism is good for the world and for the church, transgenderism is normal, and modesty is an outdated burden that serves male dominance and holds women back. In your conversations since the book came out, everybody seems to want to go immediately to homosexuality and transgenderism and kind of set aside the other three lies. Mm. It, it, It makes sense because that's where the pain point is happening in local churches, where the conversation is happening, where the culture is pressing hardest against us. Modesty and and feminism, 
it's not that they're insignificant, but they're more in the background compared to transgenderism and homosexuality. And of course, you can speak to these issues from a unique perspective because of your background. Um, I, I remember a conversation I had with Gavin Ortland after he had written his book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And I said to him, so those people in the church who are saying this, let's make this an agree to disagree issue. We can get along. We can, let's focus on the gospel and let's agree to disagree. You're shaking your head as I say that. Why can't this be an agree to disagree right. on issue? Well, let me just, can I back up too and just respond to the, the five lies? All of them reflect the reigning idol of our day. Um, feminism, paganism, modesty are a little bit behind the curtain but they all work from a belief that the creation ordinance is not what God said. It's not a good pattern. It's not a binding pattern. Um, and they also work from a position that says, actually, sex and gender are different. And so there is a way that they all come together. But I think people are struggling with the fact that homosexuality and transgenderism do not just reflect indwelling sin patterns that are affecting children and, and households. And, and, and we're not just trying to fight them like an indwelling sin pattern. They are the idol of our day. And so it's no longer about language, like, oh, I don't like gay Christian. Oh, you like gay Christian. Oh, I like, because people didn't get fired for you know, using your synonym finder in whatever way you wanted to do it, um, this is ideology that is now has the the teeth of the federal government behind it because of the Bergefell, Bostock, Title IX changes. Uh, you know, so I think you know people are desperate in those ways. But what I don't like, and I do like, I like Gavin Ortland a lot, and so I don't, I never like to get on a podcast and say, ah, but I'll tell you this much, I'm a Reformed Presbyterian. We don't use a tier approach to understand false teaching or its danger. We use something called the regular, regulative principle of worship. So if it's, if it's forbidden, it's forbidden. Uh, the problem with the tier approach is almost everything becomes second tier. You know, I mean, because somebody's, you know, cousin Gladys is connected to it and you don't want to, you know, get Aunt Tilly's big toe throbbing again. And, it, you know, so uh, and, you know, we're, you know, Presbyterians, especially Reformed Presbyterians, we've, you know, we have two very foundational doctrines that helps us, I think, stay kind of steady in this storm. I'm not saying we're, you know, impervious to Satan's uh, wiles or any of that, or that it's not hard or that we might not be taken out any moment. But I, what I am saying is this, we believe that we need to have a doctrine of political disobedience in a culture that hates God. And we also believe in the doctrine of the mediatorial kingship of Christ, meaning that we are to go to the civil magistrate and call them to repent of their sin of binding millstones around the necks of children. That is, we're not just calling people to repent of the sin of their private matters, as you would like an evangelism explosion, but you would actually do things like what I and other members of my church do, and that's go to school board meetings and you know defend parental rights and and talk about the junk science of transgenderism and, um, and then, you know, watch people cry and scream. Um, 
<laughs> and you know what? I'm a homeschool mom, so I'm used to going into a room and talking for three minutes and then everybody's crying. I, it's no different now. I, you know, it's no different. I just get dressed a little dressed a little differently when I go to a school board meeting. But you would differentiate in terms of fellowship. You, you would fellowship with someone who's not an exclusive psalm singer yes, or someone who, who practices credo baptism, but you wouldn't feel the same way. You do have tears because you wouldn't feel the same way about somebody who is affirming, who's gay well, affirming. Well, it depends on what you mean by fellowship. If, if what you mean is, do I have dinner? Do I dine with sinners and read bad books all the time? <laughs> and I have, uh, you know, I dine with so many sinners that I remember one time a good friend of mine texted me and said, you need to review this book. Uh, it is outrageous. And the author talks about you in the first chapter. And I said, stop texting me. I'm having dinner with her now. Okay. You know, <laughs> I, I, I read bad books and I dine with sinners, but I would not be at the Lord's table with her. Now, does that mean she's not welcome to attend my church? I, goodness gracious, no. Of course she can come to my church. But she's not at the Lord's table with me. So it just right. depends on what fellowship means. I, actually, I, I, I think the issue is that one of the reasons we've gotten to a place where these five lies are so pervasive in broad evangelicalism is we've actually forgotten how to love our enemies. And instead, we really prefer to just pretend because our enemies have a lot of common grace, that our enemies are our friends. And that's a very sloppy, cowardly, traitor-like move on the part of Christians. Christian, love your enemy. And, and you know, I know because I was the enemy at Ken Smith's table all those years. And he loved yep. me enough to tell me the truth over 500 meals and many conversations. So the, if you love your enemy, you're going to be in proximity with your enemy but you're not pretending your enemy is your friend or you're not pretending that your enemy is Christ's friend. And I don't care how, you know, you can self-ID as a tomato, you can self-ID as a girl, you can self-ID as a 13-year-old soccer player, and you can self-ID as a Christian, but if there ain't fruit, I'm not buying it. Yeah. I, I heard years ago talking with a mom of a middle school child the mom said the common conversation that 14-year-old girls are having these days about their own gender and sexuality goes something like this. I think I'm probably 70% straight and maybe 30% gay. And they feel that way because they have a loving relationship with some of their girlfriends and they think, well, I must be gay if I love my girlfriend. Can I add one other reason? Yeah. Uh, because of the... Um, the movement in government schools to uh, inculcate a spirit of allyship hmm. around all of the different possible marginalized people out there. And so about even like, I'm mm -hmm. going to say it's probably 10 years ago at this point, uh, a neighbor sent her daughter to me because the daughter said, you know, Mrs. Butterfield, 70% of my seventh grade class, the girls say that they're bisexual. Is that possible? And I said, no, Susie, that's not possible, but it is possible that 70% wants to be an ally to people who seem like they're not included in things. And so what you've seen is the allies of the old gay rights movement. Remember that old movement? It was the one that said, let's leave consenting adults alone. Boy, that's a blast from the past, <laughs> isn't it? 
while the allies of the of the old gay rights movement have become the groomers of the trans child movement. And how did you get there? Well, you know, this idea that empathy with people who are different from you is always the best strategy. It's not always the best strategy. Bob, if I'm, you know, drowning in a river, don't empathize. Don't jump in and feel the experience from my point of view. Stand on solid ground and throw me a rope. And so that's, you know, we, we, we really bought into this idea that fixing problems is mansplaining and it's bad and you shouldn't do it. But no, actually, really, if you are struggling with either homosexuality or transgenderism, that's a bad way to be. It's a bad way to feel and it's a bad way to act. And it's bad whether you get a parade, a civil rights 1964 sticker, or, you know, or anything else. It, it, is, it is a bad way to be. So people need to be rescued. That's what the gospel offers. And so I think it's really the, the muddling of empathy and sympathy and the particular role that government schools have played even before 2021. I mean, 2021, now it's, now it's so crazy that unbelievers are telling you to yank your kids out of government schools. Um, but, right. you know, because that's when the, the Biden administration put the, um, the BOSTOC-approved um, anti-bullying legislation that, you know, really required transgender advocacy. And, and so for the 14-year-old girl who, in order to stand for what she's been taught— that's going to mean social ostracization. She's going to be, she's going to be seen as yeah. a real hateful person. Oh yeah, no, no. You're asking that 14 year old girl to go be John the Baptist and be the voice exactly. crying in the wilderness. But my other question is, what has she been taught? Because she, mm. if she's in one of these mega churches where you've got Preston Sprinkle coming in and and Revoice coming in, she's as much of a mess as anybody because she thinks she's supposed to empathize. Mm. So it's a mess, but no, you're absolutely right. You are putting that 14-year-old girl in a place where you're saying, go be John the Baptist and go be that nine hours a day. And dad's going to do devotions in a catechism class when you get home. So <laughs> we're good. You know, we're good. And I just think parents have no idea the kind of lion's den that they're sending their children to when they send them to government schools. And I know granddaddy was the principal 50 years ago and he prayed with people and even spanked them, but know what time it is, Christian. It's not 50 years ago. It's not even 10 years ago. It's really rough out there, especially for our kids. Even if they're not in government schools, if they're in the private Christian school, or even if they're homeschooled, they're still running against the cultural tide. And for a 14-year-old to do that yes. is so unusual and parents are panicking. Yes. What's your best advice for them? Well, see, that's why we need to train people, adults, students, how to move into the battle. Um, I mean, it's gotten so funny. I teach, right? I'm a teacher. I run the rhetoric literature department in a school and in a, it's a large co-op. And you know, it's gotten to the point where I've had students actually ask if I would start to coordinate the uh, field trips. I've said, well, but I'm not the fun mom. Why would I coordinate the field trips? They said, well, you could take us to school board meetings and teach us how to do this. Like, well, are you 18 yet? If not, you've got to sign a parental release form. But you see, I think this is true because I'm telling this to my students. I'm teaching this to my students. Um, 
these are the days that God is teaching you to be a man or teaching you to be a woman. And so when something happens, like the transgender athlete decides to use your locker room and become your coach, you need to look at this through the eyes and the lens of scripture. Is this maybe God's opportunity for you to be a man, to do the right thing? And by doing that, I'm saying, is this your opportunity to take up your cross? Is this your opportunity to actually lose something you love for the Lord you say you love? Mm. Is this a time for Christians to stand up and say, not in my swim team, not in my town, not here, because we actually believe in stable biological categories of maleness and femaleness, of man and woman. And we believe that God's design is good for the world. And we believe that rebellion against that is a condemnable sin, the kind from which you end up in hell if you don't repent. So we can't really be a soft presence here in Sodom anymore, Bob, can we? And so I, my experience is I, you train your class to do that. You talk to your student. You, I bring, I bring my children to school board meetings. <laughs> now they're older. Like they're, you know, my 20 year old son is actually my bodyguard, but this is reality. So I think we have to stop acting as though it's 1999 and we live in what Aaron Wren would call neutral world. And if you're just a soft presence, everything's going to go well. No, I actually think we have to run the risk of calling people to Christ, of learning how in the heat of battle to love people well, and also learning the great art of privacy. And that means that you go to a school board meeting, it's pretty testy, and you go up to somebody afterwards who's most upset by you, and you invite her to dinner. And you know what, Bob, I know this is crazy, but these people come. The the gospel, eternity is written in the hearts of men. I'm a former gay rights activist. I remember the conversations we would have. And, you know, I was a gay rights activist during the heyday of the AIDS epidemic in New York. Even as an unbeliever going to funeral after funeral after funeral with no hope, it forces you to ask the question, is there something better than this? Maybe I'm wrong. What am I missing? So... I just think Christians need to be trained and not trained under things like let's humanize the transgender experience or let's normalize gay marriage. Uh, No, I mean, one of the things that Ken Smith said to me the first time he met me is I accept you as a lesbian. I just don't approve. Mm -hmm. We, We need to be able to stand on solid ground. And my experience is you can have very direct conversations and loving conversations with people in privacy, Mm. in your home, Mm -hmm. in their home. But Christians seem to prefer to do this by platforming on Twitter. And that is really stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what else to say. That's not polemical too. That's just old Italian grandma speaking. Okay, so, that's just stupid. So let me ask you a um, uh, a politically incorrect question. Perfect. You wrote this with grandmas and mothers in mind. Are we seeing this problem more pronounced among women than among men in churches? Oh, I don't think so. 
I really, what you're seeing more prevalent among women is rapid onset gender dysphoria. Right. Um, so around young girls, you're seeing young girls who have parents who have made, uh, you know, the decision to leave them in a government school. And that's much more so there than, than any private school I know of, Bob. I mean, I've been spending a couple of years on the front line of this. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not saying private schools are great or that private Christian schools are all great, although I do like ACCS schools a whole lot. I mean, if you have your teachers signing an inerrancy form, you're going to get a different kind of school. But, right. but that notwithstanding, you know, girls who tend to be driven more towards empathy and who just have more flexible and, and a more willingness to see things from people's different point of view. They are the people who are in great crisis. But I will tell you, I meet dads at school board meetings who have just castrated their 14-year-old son, and they think it's a good thing. So I, I think it's the younger people. But what I'm noticing, the people who seem to have their wits about them are the people who don't, quote unquote, have a ministry role. You know, they're just the moms. They're just the grandmas. They actually spend more time reading their Bible and on their knees. They would never go to a big conference because that would cost too much money. And then who's going to make the hot dish for Sunday's uh, fellowship meal? I mean, they're the sensible people. And they're not impressed when these big parachurch ministries come in and want to give you a lecture filled with really kind of psycho babble and 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 with a little bit of gospel on top of it and they also know the order of things they know that it all starts in genesis and that you can't just be a new testament church they were the people who when andy stanley said let's unhitch the old testament from the new testament knew he was a heretic and right. nobody put a microphone under their mouth to ask you know because that's not the the place they're in so I would say um, that there are a lot of very sensible Christians who are really um, concerned, though, about what's happened in their churches, what's happening in their families. But they're plucky, gritty people. I know of one family that when uh, they were at the pediatrician and the doctor said, you know, Mrs. Smith, uh, this is no longer your son, Bobby. This is your daughter, Julie, and you better comply. And she lived in a state where there were no parental rights. And she nodded her head and she smiled. And that night, the family moved to Idaho. Wow. These are the people that are praying in faith. And these are the people who know that we serve a resurrected Christ. And these are also the people who know that there's a lot of sin in the camp of broad evangelicalism. And for as long as Aiken's in the camp, we don't have a lot of business expecting that God will bless us. Are you saying that winsome persuasion, we're back to Aaron Wren saying we're in a negative world, so we have to change the strategy, right? Right. Winsome persuasion is no longer going to work. It depends upon what you mean by winsome. So, I mean, if by winsome, you mean I want to win some, you know, if you've seen the video that's gone around about me speaking before the school board, I'm pretty winsome in that video. Mm -hmm. I'm smiling. Mm -hmm. I'm nodding. I'm engaging with people. I'm holding eye contact. 
Um, and I've gone back many times after that. It's gotten so bad, I've offered myself to be on the LGBTQ task force merely so that I could argue with myself, offering reasons. You know, I mean, I, I mean, if, if I win some, uh, you know, and definitely by God's grace, I have been able to persuade people. So right. if by winsome persuasion, you mean you are willing to stand really close to people who are sinners and you are willing to press into their lives with casseroles and friendship and the gospel. And if they will receive you, if God is working in their heart, they will be one for the gospel. If that's what you mean by winsome, I don't know, Bob, I think I'm still doing it. Mm-hmm. But if what you mean by winsome is, let me see, I've heard a slogan recently. It's, it's a big evangelical church uh, in my local area who wants to, you know, doesn't want to offend parents who like, you know, the, the ease and the comfort of the government schools. And so they all have a little banner now. It's called love, don't leave, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it all it does is it extends the love is love, uh, you know, uh, slogan of, uh, you know, of the gay rights movement. And let's face it, either love is love or God is love. Mm-hmm. Either you are loving your neighbor by telling the truth and sharing the gospel, or you're loving your neighbor by having gay sex, go figure, yes. which might it be. So I, I would say, I, I think that if by winsome, we mean you're winning some for the gospel, then do it. But I think it's, I think what Aaron Wren is, is going for, I don't know, I don't know Aaron personally, but I, I, I've read his work. And I think what he's trying to say is that not that Christians need a different gospel, not at all, that we need a different strategy in a world where people hate us, not that people think neutrally of us. And what you want to do is you do want, you know, I don't want people to hate me, but I show up and I, I own the gospel mm-hmm. and my allegiance to Christ. Uh, and and I do so with with kindness and with uh, you know with humility, um, but I show up. And so, Christian, are you showing up where the where the battle is the hottest, or are you pretending that there is no battle? Are you pretending that Bostock, Obergefell, people like Peter Vlaming losing their job because they weren't using pronouns or even had the bad taste to, as a French professor, believe that nouns are gendered? You know, and no kidding. Uh, you know, are you pretending that's not the world you live in? Because I wouldn't say you're being a soft presence. I just say you're being a, a delusional fool. Just know mm. what time it is. So, I, I I think this is so critical because I think Jesus was full of grace and truth. We must be full of grace and truth. And I see people gravitating in to either direction. I want to be full of grace. I'm going to compromise on truth. Or I want to be full of truth. I'm going to let down the grace. You can't do either of those. No, I, no. I have come back over the last five years again and again to Paul's admonition to Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses. We have got to keep that ethos as the underpinning of how we do cultural engagement. And some think, well, if I do that, I can't say hard things. No, you can say hard things. We're we're hearing you do it with grace and love and kindness, the same way Ken Smith did it with you. Right. Could I add one thing to that? The one reason that Christians struggle with that is they don't have a good wolf extermination strategy. <laughs> 
And so that's the problem. See, the problem is I will treat my unbelieving neighbor very differently than I would a wolf in the church Mm -hmm. who needs to be kicked to the curb. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And and I think we have this strange delusion that there are no wolves in my sweet little town. There are no, right. you know, and, and I don't know, I don't even know where that comes from. Yeah. I, but, but, so that's another big difference that you need to know the difference between an unbeliever who is, who hasn't heard the gospel and needs to hear the gospel or a rebellious member of your school board who needs to hear that the gospel comes with blessings and curses, mm-hmm. or the wolf who wants to come into your church and start a gay bowling league so that you can all be nicer to the sexual minorities in your church. And I think this is also where we're running with an odd narrative. Um, you know, this somehow this idea that the church has been horribly abusive to quote unquote, gay people over all of these years. And, you know, part of me, I I think that in a therapeutically engaged world, an old grandma that looks askance at you because you have too many piercings is considered abuse. Now, I just want to say it out there. Do you know what goes on in the gay community? Do you know what goes on in gay relationships? And I know this is a G-rated you know, show, so we're not going to go too far in this, Bob, but there is nothing more abusive than that. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what goes on in the transing of our children? Mm. Everything that starts from the social transitioning in public schools that don't even tell you what's going on to the medicalization of castrating your 14-year-old in the name of liberty. And do you know what goes on? I mean, my husband puts it this way. Kent says, it's like Dr. Frankenstein met Dr. Mangala, and they went into practice together. And you're telling me that there is anything that an evangelical church has done that is like that? You know, so, but I think that you have these people who have just gone to therapy for too many years, Bob, and nobody went up to them. No Italian grandma went up to these nice people and just took them by the shoulders and said, you know what? Get a grip. Yeah. Get a grip because the gay community has abused each other to a degree of force, maybe not intentional, but to a degree of force and violence that is just simply incomparable to, you know, Grandma Judy looking askance at somebody because there are too many piercings or whatever. Well, Westboro Baptist was the 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 front face of how Christians respond to the gay movement. And where are they? Yeah, exactly. See, this is the, like, so, so telling me that you are like Don Quixote sparring windmills and yes. that somehow that's equipping the church, uh, you're a fool, but I'm not. <laughs> So you're you're a pastor's wife. Your husband's a pastor. Mm-hmm. We're talking to pastors and church planters. When we moved into our new building, I got an email the first week from somebody who said, we're neighbors. We see that a church is coming in. We're a same-sex couple. We want to know, would we be welcome at your church? And I responded and said, we hope everybody will feel welcome at our church. I think what you're really asking is, where do you stand on these? And here's a link to a sermon you can listen to that will give you a perspective on that. We never saw them. 
Yeah. And some people would say, well, maybe if you had taken a different tack, maybe they would have eased in and heard the gospel. So if, if you're a consultant strategizing with a pastor or with a church planter and saying, here's how you need to approach this with your people and in your community, what would you say? Right. I would say John 8, 31, 32, abide in the truth and the truth will set you free, but get to know people. So, I mean, I would prefer to have a conversation with that person. Um, you know, during the COVID shutdown, um, our, our little church stayed open because we're little, but um, we, we also opened the church as a food distribution site. And I worked alongside of all kinds of people to distribute food that had at one point been designated for you know, restaurants that are now closed and that needed to be delivered to people. And so one young woman came to me and said, oh, this is a cool church. Is it an affirming church? I said, no, absolutely not. It's not an affirming church. She said, you mean you wouldn't affirm me as a lesbian? I said, sweetheart, sit down. I used to be a lesbian. And here's what I remember. And here's what I know. And and, and I'm here to help you. And here's what, and you know what she did? She broke down into tears and she said, I wish you could be my mother. Okay. So just talk to people. Talk to people like they're people. Don't presume that everybody is a snowflake. I mean, we had been hauling 50 pound bags of food for, you know, a couple of hours. I was confident she wasn't a snowflake. Yes. Um, and we continued to labor side by side for years. Mm -hmm. uh, helped her move when her relationship became abusive and she needed to get out. She knew where to go for help. Our associate pastor helped her fix her car. Um, now, did she come to church? Did she repent of her sin? Did she become a believer? Not on my watch, but did she know the church cared for her? How could yeah. she not? She told me she wanted me to be her mother. Yeah. So I would say build relationships, answer people's questions, treat them with respect. I remember Beckett Cook sharing his story about being at a Starbucks or wherever it was That's and yep. seeing people having a Bible study and going over and saying, so what do you believe about homosexuality? And they told him, they told him straight. Right. And he said, I was so impressed with the fact that they didn't try to get mealy mouth. And, right. and I think we sometimes think, well, we got to nuance this or we're going to drive them away right. when we can be like Rosaria and say, no, of course not. Sit down, sweetheart. Let's talk. Right, exactly. <laughs> Well, I, I hope people will read the book and I hope it will give them courage and confidence because I think we are lacking that. I think we are fearful and I think we're afraid of being marginalized. We have to recognize that wherever we are, we're not the majority and the United States is not living in Christendom anymore. And we have to develop new strategies for how we're going to winsomely, I'm going to use that word appropriately, mm -hmm. winsome, win some mm -hmm. through being kind and gracious, but not compromising on the truth. I think your book helps us with that. Let me ask you one final question. You decided to name names in this book. Yeah. You decided to call out specific people. Mm -hmm. You want to know why, Bob? Yeah. Okay. I know, but you better uh, uh, tighten up your chin strap, okay? I'm ready. I'm an English professor, and it's called Citing Your Sources. And if that is a matter of great controversy for evangelical Christians, then I will tell you that you would not survive my ninth grade English class. <laughs> you would have to go to therapy. You would have, and so I'm citing my sources. Ideas have a material force. Ideas have people's names attached. 
I'm citing my own sources. I repent of my own sin because yeah. I have sinned by promoting transgender pronouns or using them or, or, and oh, but Rosaria, why can't you just course correct? Well, I did course correct 10 years ago, but it's written in a book that sold a hundred thousand copies. So guess what? I'm a public figure. I need to repent. Yes. I, so Bob, I don't get why citing your sources is all of a sudden like shock, you know, and I also don't understand why being a, a Christian who repents of sin is causing shock and awe. Yeah. What's wrong with us? Here's what's wrong with us. There are a lot of people who say they're Christians and they're not. Stop believing them. Stop promoting them. Get back into the basics. Uh, support your local church. Get on your knees. Read your Bible. I trust you have benefited from the conversation with Rosaria Butterfield. Let me encourage you to get a copy of her book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. There's a link to that book in the show notes, along with links to other books that Rosaria has written. And I think they're all helpful. Again, check that out in the show notes. You can also get more information about the Great Commission Collective by going to the link you see in the show notes or go to our website, gccollective.org. If you'd like to find out how your church could link up with GCC and whether it's a fit, again, go to the website, gccollective.org. And as always, we want to encourage you to pass along a link to this podcast to other pastors or people in ministry, lay elders, people you know who are planting churches and are committed to the local church. Uh, like this podcast, subscribe to the podcast, and leave comments that will help get the word out about the bounce. Share this with others, if you will. Next time when we get together, Dave Harvey, who is the president of the Great Commission Collective, is going to join us. We're going to talk about how a church can establish a residency program in the local church that will help equip and train future pastors, planters, and leaders and provide you with some needed help in your local church ministry for a season. Dave Harvey joins us to talk about that next time on The Bounce.